Calgary, a sprawling obsession. Episode 1, Borrowing Against the Future. Calgary City Hall, September 13th, 2022, after a long day at the City Council. I oppose the removal of the GMOs proposed through these bylaws. These changes will destroy an intact riparian ecosystem with a healthy wetland and result in thousands of people living in an area that is at a high risk of flooding. It is also fragile and represents one of the few remaining intact riparian areas along the Bow River in Calgary. When you walk through this neighborhood, you see who calls it home. There's bank swallows listed as species at risk in Canada. There are herons with a huge rookery at the tops of riverside cottonwoods where they nest each summer. There's native plants like sink foil supporting pollinators. All things that cannot stand up to the pressures of thousands of people. Finally, the city of Calgary's own maps show the critical risk of flooding. This all shows that the environmental impacts of city planning still do not receive enough scrutiny and they must play a more significant role in these discussions. We need to stop growing out when we have so much room where we already live. It's time for us to move into the reality of the 21st century. This was the voice of Nathaniel Schmidt, member of the board of the Alberta Wilderness Association during the discussions around the removal of the growth management overlay for five new communities in the outskirts of Calgary. Keystone Hills-Lewiston in the north of Calgary, Belvedere West in the west, and Ricardo Ranch Seddon Ridge, Ricardo Ranch Logan Landing, and Ricardo Ranch Nostalgia in the southeast. For those of you unfamiliar with the municipal lingo, this is the final decision before a new community can begin development. Further during the debate, we heard this intervention from Jen Carlo Cara, Councillor for Ward 9. We heard proponents from industry talking about how they're trying to build a better city. And you heard from very dedicated members of the community who were offering a very salient counterpoint about the environmental impact in general and specifically regarding many of the decisions that we're going to make today. But what we're doing here is uh, we're preempting uh, our processes and I think we're sending a terrible signal. And that signal is that um, we're not interested in fulsome debate and we're very susceptible to political pressure from an industry uh, that is worth billions of dollars and will cost the taxpayer billions of dollars. Um, you know, whether this is something we would end up approving in November or not, we're sending the absolute wrong signals, both to industry that we can be lobbied and to the community who is desperate for leadership on the climate front. First reading of bylaw 50P 2022, anyone opposed? Hearing none, that's carried. Second reading of bylaw 50P 2022, anyone opposed? Hearing none, that's carried. Authorization for third reading of bylaw 50p 2022. Anyone opposed? Hearing none, that's carried unanimously. Third reading of bylaw 50p 2022. Anyone opposed? Hearing none, that is carried. And so on for bylaws 51p 2022 and 52p 2022, which in other words meant that all five communities were approved and that development activities could proceed. This last intervention was from Mayor Jyoti Gondek, after the motion was carried with 11 votes for and 3 against. The point of these clips is not to designate who is right and who is wrong. I chose it because the arguments heard are a great summary of the issues linked to the development and growth of the city of Calgary. For now, urban sprawl, because we need to name it eventually, is mostly a contentious issue, brought up during budget discussions or the approval of new communities, such as the one evoked in the clips. But for some academics and concerned citizens, this is already an existential question for all of us. The outward expansion has been, for a long time, presented as the best way to keep the city affordable and avoid the housing crisis observed in other urban centers, such as Toronto or Vancouver. 
But this reality comes with consequences. They were either outweighed by the expected benefits or deemed less pressing than the necessity to answer to the housing demand and solution to those issues would be dealt with down the road. The debate surrounding the latest community approvals showed that the narrative has started to change and costs associated to urban sprawl are already being felt by the inhabitants of Calgary. In this podcast, we will try to understand urban sprawl in Calgary as a global phenomenon and clarify exactly what kind of risk it represents. Over the next three episodes, we will discuss risks to Calgarians themselves and what choices made this policy the go-to solution in spite of its known negative effects. Then we will discuss the threats towards the environment and ecological features around the city, and we will finish by the harm caused to traditional activities and cultural heritage from the point of view of indigenous people around Calgary. By the end of this series, I hope that you will have the tools to participate in this important debate for the future of Calgary, and I intend to do it in a constructive, honest, and hopefully entertaining way. We need to stop growing out when we have so much room where we already live. My name is Simon Savinel. I am a Calgarian with a lifelong interest for environmental issues and recently turned volunteer. I say Calgarian, but as you can probably hear, I was not born in Calgary. When I arrived from France for the very first time in 2012, even before I landed, the first thing that struck me was the size of this city. In Europe, when imagining North American cities, we often picture long stretches of suburbs with houses that look pretty much the same with nice green lawn. However, the proportion taken by this phenomenon in the case of Calgary went beyond my expectations. When explaining the situation to friends, a comparison that I often use was that Calgary was approximately as populated as Manhattan Island, but over an area ten times bigger. However, besides some difficulties with remembering the names of all the communities that divide the city, I did not think much of it. Then, on the day of November 2021, I heard those words. Councillor Thali, well, do you want to start your open again? Yeah, your worship, I can start again. Uh, so this is a, a declaration of climate emergency and call to action. At that time, I was already volunteering with environmental groups, but it is this declaration that sparks my interest for the question. So I decided to delve deeper into the mechanisms that connect the city, its inhabitants, and the environment that surrounds it. And progressively, I understood the disconnection between this declaration and the growth strategy adopted by the administration of the city. However, this situation did not appear out of thin air. Municipal policies played a significant role in promoting and enabling urban sprawl, with zoning bylaws that favored low-density suburban development and infrastructure investments that prioritize expanding road networks rather than investing in public transit. Furthermore, we need to factor in the lobbying from developers that helped shaping urban development policies in favor of this multi-billion dollar industry which paradoxically does not necessarily help to meet the real housing needs. However, there is a growing recognition of the need for more sustainable and compact urban development models that prioritize public transit, walkability, and mixed-use development. If we want to make urban sprawl a thing of the past, we must understand these complex, conflicting interests, and this is what we will discuss in this first episode. But in order to have a productive discussion, it is probably a good idea to be sure that we are using the proper words and that we understand them correctly. This is why I sat down with Byron Miller, professor of geography at the University of Calgary 
and who also led the Urban Studies program for over 20 years. If somebody could give me an accurate definition of what urban sprawl is, it would definitely be him. So there are lots of different definitions of urban sprawl. And I mean, if you listen to Calgary's development industry, they will argue that there is no urban sprawl in Calgary uh, because what we do is planned. And, and one definition of, of um, urban sprawl is that it's unplanned, but I don't think that's a very good definition. I would define it in terms of three characteristics uh, that it's automobile dependent, uh, that it involves segregated land uses, and that it's relatively low density. So if you have those things, those three things together, that's, that's what I would consider to be urban sport. And so if we look at this definition and the current situation in Calgary, Would you say that it does correspond to a situation of urban sprawl? Yeah, I, I think for the, for the most part, yes, it does. Uh, I mean, we are doing better than we used to do. Uh, so, for instance, with new developments, there is attention placed on in, integra integrating a wide range of, of land uses and, and trying to make uh, shopping for daily needs uh, you know, relatively easily accessible. Uh, but that said, pretty much everything that we're building in terms of new developments is automobile dependent. And while it's more dense than it used to be, uh, it's still relatively low density. So this is settled. But don't think that the city is not aware of the situation or that it only became aware of the issue in the past few years. In the mid-90s, the municipal administration started what they called a sustainable suburb study. One of the conclusions was the necessity for denser development. An application of the conclusions of this study is the community of Garrison Woods, which was built in the end of the 90s. At that time, the project faced significant resistance, coming from private development industry, who feared that the higher density would scare away potential buyers, but also from residents, who were afraid that the negative perception of this community would progressively affect the attractivity of the other communities that surrounded it. However, when Garrison Woods turned out being a popular new district, it showed to a lot of people in the industry and the administration that Calgary could support different types of development patterns. Now, the question is why we have not followed this example and why urban sprawl seems to be the only way to plan for growth in Calgary. Oh, well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question, and, a, and, a, and I think there's not a, a simple uh, answer to that. But um, I think there are at least a couple of things. I mean, one is that cities are underfunded. Uh, cities don't have the funding streams that they need to build high-quality public transportation systems, for instance, particularly if we're talking about light rail. Uh, we don't have funding to build uh, non-market housing, social housing, uh, even though that is a mandate that used to be covered by the federal government, was then passed down to the provinces, and the provinces passed it down to the cities, uh, but nobody provided cities with the funding. Uh, to meet these obligations. So cities are dramatically underfunded in terms of the obligations uh, that they have to, to their citizens. So what do you do when you don't have the funding to meet your responsibilities? And the, the simplest solution to that that doesn't involve uh, raising revenue by the city is to simply let the market take care of it. And so urban sprawl, to put it you know, succinctly has become our de facto uh, affordable housing policy. So we let the market build it and it builds, you know, low, relatively low density, automobile dependent uh, development at ever greater distances from the established areas of the city. And because the city doesn't build light rail to that uh, and the city doesn't provide social housing in, in those new developments, generally speaking, there are some exceptions, It's a lower cost proposition for the city, but it's lower cost in the short term. It's higher cost in the long run. So 
This model, I mean, it's a model that we have been working with for decades, right? This is Francisco Alanis Uribe. He is an assistant professor in the School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape at the University of Calgary. His work focuses on how urban planning has an impact on sustainability, which includes questions linked to densification and walkability of communities. Secure a large piece of land that doesn't have uh, any buildings in them uh, before. And also there are very large parcels, so they're not subdivided before. So maybe there's one or two owners uh, for large pieces of land, and then you will be able to break that down and create these communities, right? Um, and then you can provide uh, hundreds of, of homes. Now, the problem is that the alternative to do some of that development within the inner city is that uh, inner city development, uh, all of those parcels have already been subdivided, so you have multiple owners, uh, right? And it's hard to assemble larger pieces of land for larger developments. So the scale of development is a bit more difficult. The other thing that is um, makes things more expensive is once you develop the land, the land value increases. And then the process of permitting, the process of developing and changing that land, let's say that you manage to, uh, to, to assemble a series of smaller lots into a larger piece so that you can develop it, uh, well, you're going to have to go through a permitting process that is more uh, extensive because you need to make sure that your impacts on the neighbors are, um, are accounted for, right? And then you're going to also perhaps encounter some opposition from neighbors thinking, no, we bought into this piece of the city, thinking that this is the character of neighborhood where we want to live, and now you want to change it, building more, uh, adding density, perhaps, or, or, or uh, adding a mix of uses. So there might be, even if it's allowed, there might be opposition from the, from the citizens. All of those things... Uh, increase the risk and uh, the length of a project that you want to do as a developer, right? Uh, and, and the risk is that uh, the opposition of the uh, um, neighboring parties, uh, the neighbors, uh, might be so strong that you might end up not being able to develop. So uh, that is a risk because you to get to that point, you have already invested time and money, right? Uh, so that that is a problem. If you don't able to capitalize on that, then then puts you in trouble, right? Uh, so that's what I mean. That it is a model uh, where it benefits the economic model benefits um, the suburban kind of development rather than what we have uh, potentially developing in the industry. So, in the case of cities like Calgary, that need to show that they are doing efforts regarding having a more sustainable design, but don't want to change the way they are thinking about the urban planning, you wrote a paper about a notion that you called, I think it was, environmental fix, or... It's, it's actually called the sustainability fix. Yes. And this is, uh, this is an idea that was coined by some... Uh, urban geographers, economic geographers, actually, uh, in Great Britain in, oh, I forget the exact date that the first article came out. I think it was maybe 2004. Uh, but they basically argued, and this was Andy Jonas and uh, Aidan Weil and David Gibbs. They're all uh, British urban slash economic geographers. And they basically argued that one of the ways in which cities now compete for investment is by m both making themselves and also marketing themselves as being environmentally sustainable. Sustainable. That, that basically they're signaling that this is a place where, you know, businesses are going to want to invest and where people with high skill levels, with, you know, basically desirable labor characteristics will want to move to. So sustainability strategies become part of an economic development strategy. And their argument, I think, has been borne out by the last 20 years or so, maybe 30 years or so of urban development, uh, where we have increasingly seen 
the greening of our inner cities, the increasing emphasis on cycling, the increasing emphasis on public transportation. Again, these are all good things, but they tend to be limited to central cities within a metropolitan area. And, you know, again, as a way of attracting uh, both both business and labor to those cities uh, and tend not to be initiatives that that basically characterize an entire metropolitan area. And this is actually not that surprising for a couple of reasons. One, that most metropolitan areas are fragmented. We have fragmented jurisdictions, so different municipalities will adopt different policies. The other is that the sorts of businesses and the sorts of people that uh, the central cities are trying to attract represent a particular part of the market. They don't represent the entirety of the market. So people who basically need less expensive housing um, and lower taxes and so on, that becomes an, a market niche for the cities, you know, you know, beyond the central core. Mm -hmm. And so you get cities competing in different ways. I actually had another article, uh, and it's an analysis simply of the Calgary metropolitan area. And the this, the subtitle is Sustainability Fix Meets Growth Machine. Mm -hmm. And the growth machine was the old model uh, that cities were adopting in the 60s and 70s and 80s and into the early 90s, where basically they were trying to attract any sort of investment uh, that they could. Uh, often with, you know, low tax strategies, uh, subsidize, subsidizing businesses and so on. And what we see is that those sorts of policies are still in place, but they tend to be in place in the municipalities in the metropolitan fringe. I mean, it's effective given the sort of part of the market that they're targeting. And, and so we end up getting cities in the metropolitan fringe that tend to be low tax, lower cost, Automobile dependent, you know, because they're not spending things on spending money on things like public transit uh, and environmental protection and uh, social housing and so on. So they can afford to make their taxes lower. So in the in the context of relying just on a capitalist housing market, this is the way in which people get sorted out in the metropolitan region with those who can afford to pay more living in the the greener, more sustainable central cities, uh, and those who cannot afford to pay more, basically going to those options that they can afford, which tend to be on the fringe. We don't distribute, uh, let's say, the responsibility of the cost uh, correctly, I will say. So as we, as we grow with low density, what we're doing is we're building more infrastructure um, and expanding that, so we, you have to expand the capacity of the built city, as well as extending the network of, of, uh, of your infrastructure. So if our densities are lower than other cities, our cost is going to also be distributed in a way that we pay more taxes for a broader network of infrastructure, right? So if you think about that, then the inner city are using uh, this infrastructure in a certain way, they use less of it, especially roads, if we're driving, you're driving a lot less. Um, this is something we have found. The closer you, you live to the core of the city, your mileage is lower throughout throughout the year. So that means that you're using less roads, right? The people in the suburbs, um, and it's not this is not to vilify them, it's just how we build the cities, right? The people in the suburbs will drive more, therefore using more infrastructure. But we don't charge it that way because most of the time, the property tax in the uh, in the suburbs will be lower in terms of percentage, right, uh, than what we see in, in inner city. So that long-term cost is not factored when we think about selling those properties to the customer. So as we can see, the question of the cost of infrastructures, how they are used, and how we share the responsibilities is a crucial factor in the question of urban sprawl. The low cost associated to buying a house in the periphery of the city 
does not reflect the reality of the costs associated with extending the network of roads and infrastructure further and further. But the effect on public spendings is real. When we are closing a public library, a swimming pool, or any other public structure meant to be shared by all Cargarians, the money that we were missing to fund them potentially went to pay for capital expenditures for new communities. But as previously mentioned, as long as regulations encourage this kind of development model, Calgarians that need an affordable place don't have any other choice than looking in the fringes of Calgary. This is a first illustration of the harm caused to the inhabitants of the city. But it is not the only one. For the next few minutes, I want to turn our attention to another threat that Calgarians are familiar with, floods. This is why I sat down with Tricia Stadnik, Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Hydrological Modeling at the University of Calgary. Her research focuses on water supply, and I hoped that she could help me understand the link that we can make between flood risks in Calgary and urban sprawl. If we look at the flood maps in Calgary, so for listeners, they are actually easily available on the website of the city. So we can see that there are two parts of the city where the portion of inhabited areas, or at least buildable areas, that overlaps with areas that are at risk of floods is above average. And those two parts are downtown Calgary, as we could expect, and the communities at the limit of the city along the Bow River. So typically Cranston or Legacy in the south and Valeridge and Greenwood in the northwest. So in the case of those communities at the periphery, would you say that in our pursuit to expand the city, we paid a bit less attention to flooding risks? That is a really complicated question to unpack. Um, and there, there are many dimensions to the answer there. In, in short, um, almost every major Canadian city has developed at the confluence of major river systems, right? So you look at the city of Winnipeg, it's the confluence of the Red and the Assiniboine. Um, you look at Montreal, it's the confluence of the St. Lawrence and many other rivers, including the Ottawa River. Um, and you look at uh, the major flooding event that occurred in BC, and it's the confluence of um, the Coldwater River and the Nicola River. Um, and so these flood events happen where rivers meet, because what happens is if one river floods, the other river can't flow. And when it can't flow, it's literally like damming that river. That water is still coming per unit time every single second. And so it has to go somewhere. And so it just backs up. And just like if you have a clog in your basement drain, it's going to go wherever it can and it's going to flood your basement. It's the same kind of thing. So historically speaking, some jurisdictions, some cities have been a little bit more proactive in regulating where people can build and where they can't. In the city of Calgary, uh, it is true that historically, particularly in the 1980s or so, uh, the rules were relaxed a little bit and developers were allowed to expand and develop on some of what we call the prime land. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, people moved to Calgary because of its natural beauty, right? You've got mountainscapes, you've got water, you've got nature just in your back door. And people move here because they love nature. They want to be beside the river because it's pretty, it's beautiful. There's fly fishing in the river, there's rafting, there's all sorts of activities that people gravitate to. And unfortunately, when people aren't educated as to the risks, and our memories are very short, um, then we tend to want to develop in those places. And the city allowed that development uh, back quite a few years ago, quite a few decades ago. Um, and part of the reason for that is that those were the prime properties, money talks, and there was a lot of investment made. And those were some of the richest homes in the city at the time. And particularly, I'm talking about some of the areas and the properties that were really impacted by 2013, from the mouth of the Glenmore along the Elbow River, along, I think it's called Riverdale or Riverwalk or something like that. Um, a lot of those properties were really severely impacted in our multi-million dollar estates. And that was because they're adjacent to a river that was always prone to flooding. Um, so that doesn't change, right? And that river is going to flood at some point in time. So you just mentioned that Calgary is not the only major Canadian city to experience this issue with conflicting interests that can lead to this situation. Uh, however, there is an article from 2021 in the Globe and Mail talking about flood mitigation in Calgary. And they mentioned the fact that policies related to building in flood fringes in Calgary are not as restrictive as other Canadian cities. 
So do you agree with that vision? Or as you said before, and I completely understand, it is complicated. It is complicated. And the reason why I say it's complicated is because the policy for the city is kind of a one size fits all. So there's bylaws and those bylaws are defined based on where you are in the floodplain. The thing about the city of Calgary in comparison to other other major cities in Canada that are confluences is the city of Calgary has a lot of topography, a lot of changes in land slope. So if you're up, for instance, in the area of the city where I live in, up on um, Nose Hill in the higher parts of Nose Hill, I'm not prone to flooding. So why shouldn't there be development in those regions? But the city bylaws are the city bylaws. And if somebody wants to claim that they're lax, then I guess they could. But the way that I see it is the city controls where that development occurs and actually does a lot of proactive things to improve drainage within the city to help with the overland flooding. And actually, I've been very impressed with some of the policy that the city has to do with regulating overland flooding. Um, so there's a whole bunch of flood initiatives that have been invested in since the 2013 flood. That article mentions some of those investments, including SR1, um, the reservoir upstream, but there is a whole bunch of other ones that are occurring within the city as well, um, such as, and people that that drive in the city all the time would notice this, but um, Sunnyside, they've improved the, the flood protection dike there along the river. There's been a whole bunch of work along the south end of the Bow River um, in the downtown core that a lot of people think is just to beautify it, but it's actually flood protection and they're using it to, as a chance to beautify the city at the same time. But the impetus of that and the investment was actually flood protection. Um, so increasing the size of the dike walls to keep the water in the banks more often and prevent the flooding. Um, they've also increased the number of dry ponds in the city, which double as recreation areas when you don't have severe rainstorms or overland flooding. Uh, there's a whole bunch of those. And if you Google it, you can actually find a map of the city's dry ponds. Uh, and they've also increased the number of wet ponds, uh, particularly riparian areas or wetland areas, natural habitats and boardwalks that are adjacent to the river that are natural low-lying areas that are prone to flooding. And the city has made major investments in those, along with green roofs and a bunch of other things to help uh, water retention within the city's core. The article mentioned in the previous question indicates the efforts made by the city of Calgary to mitigate risks of flooding by restoring some parts of the landscape, building flood retention reservoir and adapting existing infrastructure to make them more resilient in case of flooding. However, in the interest of transparency, I wanted to mention the part of the article that evokes the issues with past policies in regard to flood risks. In apparent disregard for these realities, city officials for many years permitted unfettered construction within floodplains as Calgary grew from a frontier outpost into a major North American city. Some municipalities restricted floodplain development, while others did not. Calgary largely fell in the latter category, a municipal report noted that while some restrictions on floodway development were introduced in 1985, at times, these limitations are relaxed for development. But would it be too restrictive to put the blame only on municipal bylaws for allowing people to build or buy a property within flood fringes? Water is a very odd beast in Canada in terms of the way it's regulated. And we're actually one of the only major uh, developed countries that, that breaks it up by jurisdiction. Um, but basically, it is municipal responsibility to regulate that and to set the floodplains within the municipal environment that determine where builders or developers or even private citizens can build or not. And that depends whether you're within what they designate the floodplain or whether you're not within that floodplain. Uh, however, the one caveat to that that happens on more of a national level is the Insurance Bureau of Canada, because the Insurance Bureau of Canada has their own flood risk maps, and that determines whether homeowners will be able to purchase flood insurance or not. And that law changed only about five years back. Before that, anyone could pay for and pay the premium to get flood insurance, and now you cannot 
Unfortunately, the Real Estate Association of Canada, we've been working with them to try to educate them, but most real estate agents aren't aware of the maps. Um, but honestly, every private citizen should absolutely 100% check out the property that they intend to buy and look at the flood risk map and make sure that they are not within that flood zone. Um, because if they are, they will not be able to purchase flood insurance. And what I mean literally is if you have another 2013 event and your house is on that newly designated floodplain because the floodplains are changing under climate change, uh, you will get nothing for your house. Um, and so you literally just walk away. And that's what happened to the people of Merritt, BC uh, in the November 2021 floods that happened. So we established that the municipal administration must account for the pressure exerted by the real estate industry when establishing bylaws. But from your point of view, do you see any other reason why we keep building in those areas that could be subject to flooding? Yeah, because Canadians have this uh, notion that you haven't made it until you have property. And unfortunately, the downtown core um, and the you know more urbanized areas, the uh, prices for property are through the roof. So typically speaking, you have much more Uh, dense builds uh, with much less property, if not condo builds and apartment builds. Um, these are much better for climate change and flood protection, by the way. Um, but people want property. They want it for their kids. They want to be able to move around, particularly after COVID. They wanted their own office space. They wanted more bedrooms in the houses. And you just can't afford to build like that in the downtown because there's not enough land left. So the urban sprawl comes from the fact that there's always going to be city growth. There's always going to be city development. That's part of our Our GDP formula, not only uh, provincially, but also nationally. Um, and so we're always going to encourage growth. But what we need to be doing is encouraging densification uh, in urban areas. And I know that's a very unpopular point of view. I live in a dense, more densely populated uh, urban area. Um, I'm, you know, 10 minute bike ride from downtown. Uh, I purposely did that because of climate change reasons, but also uh, because of what it means for city infrastructure and flood protection risks. So it's much better to concentrate your resources and your infrastructure from a management point of view for a city. As you probably expected, it is time for us to talk about densification. The topic comes back in all discussions about urban sprawl whether it is about thinking of the design of future communities or the retrofitting of existing buildings. And going back to the issue of public facilities that we mentioned a few minutes ago, this is also a way to justify investment in maintenance and improvement of existing infrastructures. Fortunately, in the case of Calgary, some groundwork has been laid regarding this question. According to the Calgary Municipal Development Plan, updated for the last time in 2020, The plan is to help 33% of new population between 2009 and 2039 to settle within the balanced growth boundary, which more or less corresponds to the areas in the city that were already approved for development. The target for 2050 is 50%. We can discuss about the feasibility of having more ambitious targets, but the reality is that we are still far from the current objectives with a level of 9.7% as of 2018. As we can see, there is a vision for a city with higher density, but with inadequate mechanisms to implement it. This is why, for some of our guests, it could be worth exploring some solutions that don't rely on market mechanisms. We haven't done enough to facilitate that change, right? Uh, I think we are not, we're not on track At least we haven't changed anything that is significant to be able to accomplish that. Um, and, and it will take like real <laughs> strong efforts to be able to get us there. There have been good changes, I would say. I have to admit that there are um, uh, and recognize that there are good changes. Uh, we are trying to focus some of this densification in parts of the city where It's easier and, and makes more sense, like in certain corridors, areas around uh, the LRT, right? Um, and even within uh, communities, try to, you know, add some density in a smaller scale uh, typologies or, or types of buildings like row houses instead of a single detached home. Um, so we are 
having some of that change uh, appear, but it's still not going far enough. A, a critical aspect of, of solving this problem is to figure out ways to make these sustainability initiatives work throughout a metropolitan area. I would argue that this means that we need to rely, we need to utilize more than just market mechanisms. So do you mean regulation? Well, regulation is part of it. Uh, funding is part of it. Uh, and having non-market uh, mechanisms for housing allocation and infrastructure investment and so on uh, is also part of it. So let's talk about those non-market solutions. Uh, people might have an approximate idea of what you mean, but I think it's worth giving some examples of what you have in mind. Yeah, well, uh, there are actually lots of examples around the world. Um, one of the revelations for me personally was understanding how Dutch cities are funded. And it, it's very, very different from how we fund cities in North America. So for the most part, we rely on local revenue generation uh, in North American cities. Now, Canada is a bit different from the US. For the most part, uh, cities are dependent on generating their own revenue. In the Netherlands, Almost all revenue that cities rely on comes from the federal government. Mm -hmm. So they, they do raise revenue locally, but it all goes into a pool at the federal level, and then it is reallocated uh, to cities based on their need. And there's a very complex formula, something like 65 different variables, and, and you know all the things that you might think of that'd be relevant to determining what a city's funding needs are, everything from uh, population to, you know, percent of the population that is not in the labor force, number of children, number of elderly, poverty rate, all those things that you might expect to influence what the needs of a city are. Mm -hmm. And so funds are allocated on that basis. That does something really interesting. What it does is it puts cities in a position where they are no longer competing against each other for investment because their revenue stream is insured. And what this means is that then cities begin to operate in a much more coherent and functional way. They, they begin to cooperate more and focus less on competing against each other. So for instance, one of the big uh, arguments that we hear uh, with the approval of new suburban developments in Calgary is if we don't approve it, then the other municipalities in the metropolitan area will. Okay. And that's a function of competition. Uh, and, and above all, it's competition for revenue, right? They want to generate that tax base because that's where their revenue stream comes from. When you're no longer dependent upon developing local property tax based revenue streams, then there is no real reason to compete in that way. You can instead focus on cooperation. So besides the question of densification, there is also the question of making our everyday life less reliant on cars. So we can make the communities more adapted to simply walking, to access simple services. But for longer trips, for example, to go to work, we can't expect people to modify their habits if we don't provide reliable alternatives, right? Exactly. That's a... That's very important to provide the reliable alternatives. This is where it should be an effort that it is um, attacked by multiple fronts, let's say, right? So the municipality not only has to say, okay, we're going to lower the requirements of parking and leave it to the uh, developer to figure out how much parking they want to provide for that particular building, right? They they should know what they can sell and they what they cannot sell. Um and what we are going to do as a city is we're going to increase the availability and the, the level of service or the quality of service of public transit. So then you are providing an alternative and people can say, okay, yeah, I'm okay moving into this building where it will have less parking and, uh, but I will be able to move around in the city, right? Now there will be another actor there, <laughs> what I've been mentioning before, which is are the neighbors saying, well, you can't do that because what they're going to do is essentially they're going to park on the streets in front of my house and so on, right? Which probably can happen, right? Uh, but what we have to then remind everybody is that the public realm, the street, it is for everybody to use. So yes, if they park on the street, 
in front of somebody else's home, that is that is allowed. But there's many cities in the world where they are going in that way. Um, the most important thing is to provide the positive experience alternative for moving around in the city. So we wouldn't be able to do that across the whole city in Calgary, but there are st spots where uh, it's possible to increase the quality of transit, of public transportation, and then uh, lower those requirements for parking and the expectations that everybody can have a car. And going back to the role of the market in shaping the way we account for growth in the city, an argument that I heard a lot in favor of urban sprawl is that this is the only way we can keep prices and rents affordable and avoid a situation like in Toronto or Vancouver. And so the idea is that stopping building cheap places from scratch would not only hurt the poorest part of the population, but it would also make it a less attractive place for innovative people. And sometimes the two categories overlap, actually. Yeah, I mean, when we compare Calgary to, to other major metropolitan centers in in Canada, uh, at the present time, we are definitely a much more affordable city than tr Toronto and Vancouver, obviously. Uh, it hasn't always been that way. If you go back to the, the, the 2006, 2007 period, uh, where Calgary was booming and Calgary's housing prices were actually on par with Toronto's and Vancouver's. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of, you know, metropolitan area specific dynamics that affect uh, housing cost and affordability more broadly. We're in a period right now where we are a more affordable city. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that it's always going to be that way. Um, and I, I mean, it really understand underscores, excuse me, the 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 fact that that there really is no national housing market. That housing markets are always metropolitan specific. And they're always dynamics specific to those metropolitan areas. Right now, uh, there are huge housing issues in Toronto and Vancouver, Calgary, considerably less so. Although, you know, we are having our, our problems with affordable housing uh, as well. I mean, it's not that we, uh, you know, we are providing lots and lots of housing for people on the lower end of the income spectrum. Uh, there's, there's definitely a crisis of affordable housing in Calgary today. Um, but it's a complicated issue. Uh, and I think one thing to keep in mind is that housing markets respond to demand. They respond to economic demand, which is basically how much money does the consumer have to spend, which is very different from responding to housing need. You can have lots of need and no demand. Market will respond to demand. It will not respond to need. And that's where non-market mechanisms come in. And this is something that we have really neglected. No, that, that's actually very interesting, this distinction between housing demand and housing need. I never thought that you could have those two notions that are very close, but with a very different meaning. Uh, and it allowed to see the problem in a different light. Well, yeah, and, and there are many housing uh, analysts and, and, and scholars who have been arguing that we need to return to thinking about housing as a basic human right and not simply as a commodity. So we have examined the problem of urban sprawl from an urban planning point of view, from an economic point of view, from a natural risk point of view, and there are also uh, all sorts of social issues that find their roots partially or completely in urban sprawl. We know that this situation has a lot of negative effects and that there are other models that exist. So my question is simple. Why do you think that we are continuing with policies that encourage urban sprawl? Uh, well, yeah, that's the that's the uh, the, the multi-million dollar question or multi-billion dollar question. Um, there are multiple reasons for it. Um, one of the most immediate reasons for that is that there are powerful special interest groups that benefit from the system as it is. Um, if you look at the campaign finance uh, data, uh, which is publicly available, and any, anybody who wants to look at it can look at it. And and I know you know a number of different organizations from time to time have done analyses of it. Uh, I've had students in my classes analyze the data, and every single analysis shows that the single biggest interest group uh, 
funding uh, counselors' campaigns is the development industry. Uh, this, you know, the, the the way in which we develop uh, is 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 highly profitable to a very important sector of our economy. And so there is a great deal of resistance to change the way we do things. Uh, that's, you know, that's, I think, you know, one of the immediate things that we can point to. But it's not the only one. And I think another really important one, a really significant one, was one that, something that we actually talked about a little while ago, which is the way in which we fund cities. So if we've created a system where cities are dependent upon local property tax revenue and other forms of local revenue generation, then there is a tremendous incentive for them to try to entice and promote development. And so, you know, the, the focus of city governance and the focus of city planning is really on growing that tax base as opposed to meeting human needs, as opposed to meeting environmental needs, uh, things that we could be focusing on if we weren't so focused on trying to attract tax revenue. A lot of people will dismiss these sorts of ideas as something that's not realistic. But I would point out a couple of things. One is that there are many parts of the world where there are different models of revenue generation, and they work very well. And, you know, we, we know that they work well. Uh, and that actually we do have an example of this here in Canada, uh, with our public school system, where we generate local property tax revenue. It all goes to the province. The province redistributes it. So we actually have an example of that mechanism at work right now in Alberta. It's just a matter of expanding that sort of framework to other areas of municipal provision. We have to remember that most of the city, when it's built, is built by private uh, capital. And that private money are banks, are investment funds. When they lend money to a developer, they expect that money back with some sort of profit. That model hasn't really changed because we haven't really changed the cost of building uh, um, in the periphery. So unless we change an economic model that it makes sense to invest in the inner city, we're not going to be seeing huge changes uh, um, on this momentum of where do we invest, where do you, does it make sense, right? We have to lower the risk and we have to really... Um, Place the cost of what it what it is to to build in the, in the suburban areas, and lower the cost of building in the inner city uh, to be able to shift that that mode. And it's hard because we are also right now experiencing a um, an affordability crisis. Right? I mean, we are in many ways seeing this, so that has to be attacked as well from different scales, so that it is not. Uh, a trigger of changing this approach, changing and, and triggering even more of a crisis of affordability. Uh, so it needs to be a real strong effort to look in, at all of the aspects that will make um, a potential change in the economics so that it makes sense yeah. to and build more in the inner city. So tell me if I'm wrong, but the fact that we underestimate the real costs of these methods and that we end up in this kind of situation, it is a bit like we are, in a sense, borrowing against the future. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Borrowing a lot, <laughs> right? Because it's very hard to retrofit and, go, and to go back. Uh, but when we look at our cities and there's still a lot of vacant land uh, in some parts where we have full-on infrastructure, right? These surface parking lots in Calgary's downtown area, it's just unacceptable that we can just do this, right? It's just a speculation of the land to um, so that it is easier for the developer or not, not the developer, but the owner of that piece of land to just sit on it uh, than to develop. So we're not, again, we're not incentivizing uh, uh, 
a good use of our resources or of our built infrastructure. In conclusion of this episode, we saw that urban sprawl is fueled by competition between cities to attract funding through local taxes. At the same time, the real cost of building new communities in underdeveloped areas is underestimated. This makes it a cheaper solution than retrofitting already existing buildings that could allow for higher population density within the existing limits of the city. Also, Municipalities such as Calgary put in place strategies to promote their actions towards more sustainable housing practices, but it mostly caters towards investors rather than actually helping to solve the existing crisis. Another aspect of the pressure from developers on bylaws is the higher proportion of houses built within the flood fringes in the periphery of the city. All of these elements combine to paint a bleak picture of urban planning policies in Calgary which are driven in large part by short-term profits rather than the long-term interests of residents. Exploring new models of development is essential if we are to solve the problem of urban sprawl, because the market mechanisms on which we rely have everything to gain by leaving the situation as it is. In our next episode, we will explore another aspect of the negative effects of urban sprawl by examining its consequences for our environment. We will discuss with biologists that will tell us about the ecological features that can be found around Calgary, the reason why their disappearance affects us all, and think about the way we can include nature within the urban landscape in sustainable cities. I look forward to having you join us for this important conversation about Calgary's future. Calgary, a sprawling obsession, is a podcast created as part of the 2022-2023 edition of the Canadian Wilderness Stewardship Program, managed by the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. I thank them for their support, advices, and motivation to help me to complete this project successfully. I also wanted to express my gratitude towards my excellent guests, Chris Menderson, Byron Miller, Francisco Alanis Uribe, Tricia Stadnik, Katie Morrison, and Hal Eagletail. A special thank you to Frisia for her unfailing support. And shout out to Nina Stone for her help with the transcription of the interviews. Music used throughout the podcast is from Olexi, Alexei Chistilin, Kai Engel, Plasticine Cowboy, Tristan Lohengrin, Olizna Raps, Andy G. Cohen, and Yiri Semshishin. You can find all the details in the description of this episode. If you are a Calgarian interested in questions around the environment and climate change and want to do something about it, there are lots of organizations that are welcoming new volunteers as well as donations. If you want some names to start your search, you can contact the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, the Calgary Climate Hub, or the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good. Please note that the ideas developed in this podcast are my own but don't necessarily reflect the vision of the organizations and people involved in this project. If you want to discuss or follow my other ventures, you can find me on Mastodon at Delaplane Productions at earthstream.social. Thanks again to all of you, and stay wild, Calgary.